Grow Fam, this is Stephanie Rodriguez, editor and producer of the Regenerate Revolution Life Soil Success podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode. Today, we have our distinguished colleague, Ian Murray, a world-renowned soil builder on the show. He's going to be talking to us everything about soil, soil list media, and all the different medias that we could talk about in the growing community. So without further ado, introduce Ian Murray. Thank you for having me on. Yes, indeed. So one of the things uh, that I wanted to get to with, with some of our customers is I've realized after going to some garden centers and doing table days that customers don't even know what potting soil is. Like they think it's dirt. It's not dirt, is it? No, not at all. And there's multiple variations of for different applications. So when I first started doing this uh, about 20 years ago, I was blending soils at a facility that also did retail and we sold a lot of bag soils too. Um, a lot of soil amendments, fertilizers, whatever people wanted. And I was the type of person that always wanted to know why somebody was doing it the way they were, thinking that I would learn something that had a special reason. So we'd have people come in and buy, you know, a truckload of bulk soil and 10 bags of peat moss and 10 bags of ocean forest to mix it together and ask them why. And, Oh, well, that's what my neighbor told me to do. Or, you know, everybody wanted to be a mad scientist and have their own soil made. Um, and nobody could ever tell me why. A lot of times it was just like, well, this is all the money I have, or, you know, this sounds good. Or I, I saw this online. Um, so there's never been a true <coughs> rhyme or reason for most of the people that we deal with on why they're actually using what they are and most of them don't even know why so for an outdoor potting mix is kind of the most generic soil that people buy across the world right outdoor gardening mix whatever like does this walk us through like what are the ingredients of soil so most outdoor mixes are going to have either peat moss, cocoa core, or a combination of. Um, that's kind of what you use for the base or the, the fluff aspect. Um, you know, what's, what's called the tilth of the soil. Um, they'll have perlite, lava rock, pumice, something like that for drainage. And then most outdoor people also like to mix in something heavier like a compost or a humus to help retain the moisture just so it doesn't dry up and they don't have to water every day when the sun's beating on it. Yeah, and so, you know, people use, like definitely, like making a heavier soil would be adding compost, worm castings, all those things so that it, it holds a little bit more water, right? Mm -hmm. And if you did say, if you say you didn't include that, it was just peat moss, cocoa core, perlite, and lava rock, it would drain quick, right? Right, that's when you get more of the, a, soilless medium that you would use more on an indoor setting or smaller pots that you want it to dry out or drain out a little bit quicker so you could water. But the big thing you gotta remember when you're, especially with organic growing, which obviously me and you do, you're trying to create an ecosystem in your soil. So yeah. if you have something that dries out too quick, and basically turns to a desert, everything dies. If you have something that holds too much water and it's like it's raining and it's a flood, everything dies. So you're trying to create that balance in there based off of your scenario, your potter container size to try to um, establish and keep that ecosystem alive, alive as long as possible so it could do the work to help feed your plant. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people are growing indoors, they're getting a really fast training soil, and they're wondering why the microbes aren't surviving, and they're wondering why they have to feed so often and so regularly. And, well, I mean, most indoor growers are using a cocoa perlite blend or a peat perlite blend. It just drains quickly. There's no water retention, really, more than past a day or two, I'd say. And then things start going anaerobic, and that's when you start getting your white flies and your thrips and your aphids and, and the pests moving. That, yeah, that's correct. In terms of peat moss and cocoa core, what's the differences in quality of peat moss and cocoa core? So one thing I'm really picky about is where I source my inputs from. Um, I don't like to buy something that it's $2 cheaper that could possibly be mm. compromised. So we actually um, import our peat moss from a company called Calpeat that gets it from Eastern Europe. Um, we found that it has all the same properties of what everybody's used to out of Canada as far as moisture retention and drainage, but there's a lot more availability where Canadian peat bogs are rapidly running out and it's a lot lower in heavy metals. So if it's somebody that is worried about CAT3 testing, um, it, it's gonna give you a lot cleaner soil. And CAT3 testing for the audience is for, you know, commercial cannabis growers are regulated and they have to do CAT3 testing, which is a, a test that's gonna talk about the heavy metals present in the cannabis before it goes to consumers. So um, yeah, finding good inputs like peat moss, cocoa core, that are low in heavy metals is ultimately the goal for commercial cannabis growers. Now let's talk about a little bit about cocoa core. I mean, is all cocoa core the same? No, not at all. Um, what most people are used to is what comes out of India, um, which is basically just the coconut pith. So what they do is they screen out all the fibers, they ship it to China to make your doormats, and then what's left is the pith, which is basically like the coffee grounds um and it was an overburden for them for a long time and they realized oh we could compress this in, in bricks so transportation makes sense we could ship it to america and sell it to them for a soil amendment um it's sold by the metric ton so there's a lot of inconsistencies in there like you'll get sand and other stuff they use to kind of heavy try to heavy it up um though india they do a lot of triple phosphate spraying on the rice field so you can run into some cadmium heavy metals problems so where we buy ours from is from the philippines and we found as far as i know they're the only company on the planet that is around for strictly horticultural grade cocoa so they everything they buy is from usda certified organic groves um, and what's it, the name of the company for everyone? It's Kinebo Organics. Um, and so what they do is instead of screening out the fiber to ship for your doormats, they grind everything down. They screen it to about three eighths inch. So you get the fiber and the pith in there. So you get a lot more aeration, um, a lot better drainage, a lot easier, evener moisture retention in pots. And you're way less likely to go anaerobic and have pest issues. Just by including the fiber with the pith. Just by including the fiber with the pith, correct. And does it have a different texture or feel? Oh yeah, it's almost like silky smooth. It, it's really unique product. Um, I've really, really grown to like it over the last couple of years since we started using it. 
Yeah, and so, you know, cocoa obviously has other issues that I think you are probably familiar with, maybe with pathogens. Yeah, um, there has been uh, pathogen issues with the product coming in from India. The main one is Aspergillus niger, which for people that don't know what that is, that's basically black mold. Oh man. Um, yeah, so, and the, the problem that they're having is it's not detrimental to the plants, but it's growing on the flowers. So they don't know they have the issue until they harvest, they ship it off for tests because part of your Cat3 test along with your heavy metals is a mold spore test and they're failing nationwide for mold on their cannabis and having to destroy their entire crops. Well, yeah, and a fun little bit of trivia for the audience is that citric acid is produced from a similar microbe to that, a black mold microbe. And people aren't, aren't familiar with that, but yeah, citric acid that's used to flavor lemonades and different types of lemon products across the United States. And it's also used in, you know, baking to lower the pH and all these different ingredients, right? Citric acid comes from mold. And my guess is that in some places, they're probably growing that mold on a substrate and then, de you know, discarding that substrate. And, you know, that's where you're getting a lot of the aspergillus. They, they very well could be. And just to make clear, there's about a thousand different types of forms of aspergillus out there. You cannot test anything pretty much without having aspergillus tested on it. It's it's everywhere. So there's only like a couple dozen that are truly, truly harmful to people. So if anybody ever gets a mold test done and they find, oh no, I have aspergillus, which you're almost gonna find every time. You need to then tell the lab that you wanna know the specific species. species and they'll test for that. And then you need to check to see if it's harmful or not. Yeah, that's important actually, because species identification is what the labs sometimes don't do right away because it's more expensive, but... Yeah, it's without triple the cost. So they do kind of an exploratory at first to see what's there. And then you have to give them the okay to actually do the identification. Yeah, I mean, that kind of gets us into the next thing about, you know, people who are making cheap soils to make a price point happen. What are the ingredients that somebody would put into a soil to cheapen it up? Um, so unfortunately, the most common thing would be some form of wood product. So there's a lot of wood products out there that aren't harmful. Um, a lot of it's used in like the horticulture nursery side. But you got to think when you have when you have a raw wood and depending on the wood, what the C to N, the carbon to nitrogen ratio on it is, you run a, a, a risk um, microbes the digesters in the soil, they like composting. So if you have fertilizer in your soil and you have raw wood that isn't broken down enough, those microbes are gonna go and start composting that wood product, which in turn, they stop digesting your their food that you put in there, which in turn starts starving your plants. So it's kind of... And nitrogen starvation is one of the leading causes of... Super common in our industry. And a lot of times, like like from my side, when I'm out um, looking for products to buy and I have, you know, say humus A, B, and C. 
humus A could be beautiful, black, coffee ground looking. You could tell that it's been aged well. Um, it's cool to the touch and say it's $40 a yard, but then you get through B and C and C is bigger, chunkier. You could still see some of the color in the wood in it. You could tell that it went through a chipper and it might've sat out for three or four months just to age a little bit. You know that it's not digested, which means that it is still being digested. And that one's say $30 a yard. So the way that I see it, especially Say I'm planning on putting 10% of this in my soil to save $3 a yard. Why would I want to buy what I know could potentially be a 50-50 harm to somebody's garden versus what I know is ready to go? So we're, we're really picky about what we pick, what we use, percentages that we use. You know, my main thing is a, a toll blender. So you come to me with your recipe, I give you a price, you say yes or no, and I blend it for you. I'm not going to intentionally let you blend something that's going to kill your plants. I've been doing this for over 20 years. You know, I've seen a lot of different scenarios. So, you know, it, it, when it comes to the end of the day, I'll mix what you want for me or from me, but I will make suggestions on potential issues that you could have based off of the recipe you're supplying me. And what about cheap ingredients that could cause pathogen issues? Maybe cow manure based things? Yeah, we really try to stay away from anything manure based. Um, A, you don't know what um, hormones or antibiotics those animals had because it will transfer out into the manure. You don't know how aged it is. The fact that it's a manure, obviously it's a byproduct. So most of these places, they're not handling it with care or care how it's handled you get a lot of trash and stuff like that in it and then there's the huge huge risk of um pathogens in anything manure base and in unfinished compost so you won't the only manure you'll even find on this property at all at any time is either bag chicken manure which we use in very small amounts and you know maybe a pallet a year just on special requests or worm castings. That's all that touches the ground here. Yeah, and I think worm castings is an important, a really important ingredient in, in soil blending operations. I mean, I'm a huge fan of it. I mean, I think people don't really understand. I mean, worm castings are great because you're taking something like vegetable waste or some type of overburden from the ag industry. The worms are digesting it, shitting it out, and then there's just a ridiculous amount of beneficial bacteria and microbes that occupy that substrate. And I'm sure you use it a lot. We, we use it close to every blend that we have. Um, and what most people don't realize on top of what the worms leave behind, the way that the majority of their digestion is done is through enzymes that they secrete on their body. So not only are you getting the, the beneficial benefits of the castings that's left behind, you get these very specific enzymes too that also do really good things in your soil. Yep, and the enzyme profile, each bacteria can almost be identified by the enzyme profile they leave behind. So it's almost like a fingerprint and each enzyme produces different effects. Um, you know, Bacillus lichenformis, Bacillus subtilis, very common in a lot of agricultural products. Those are actually milked, I call them, on the industrial level to produce enzymes for cleaning enzymes and different types of enzyme products like um, RV enzyme, you know, liquids. 
you know, enzymes are a huge part of why we want bacteria. Well, and you are what you eat. So depending on the castings, you know, you could have 10 different castings, all 10 of them, even though they came from worms, they're gonna be completely different based off of yep. the substrate that you ran them through and the food that you fed them. So you could actually manipulate and create a specific profile you want based off of what you give them as far as a food in a living environment. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different worm castings providers that do manure-based castings where they've eaten manure or they do, you know, feedstocks like corn leftovers or wheat leftovers or like all these different things. There's some that do mushroom compost leftovers. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting one, right? You have mushroom compost and mycelium then being digested, the casings being digested by worms. Yeah, no, that's, that's one of the more um, common practices down in the valley. You could get some really, really interesting castings from it. a lot of those places too they also just sell you a vermicompost where it's basically unscreened casting so you're getting the digested so most most mushroom farms when they grow their mushrooms they use peat as a base and they add a sterilized dehydrated chicken manure so this is different than just going out and getting your raw cow manure or sheep manure or something like that um obviously because they use it to grow food grade mushrooms so and they add in cottonseed meal and some other stuff but once it's went through that that cycle it's basically depleted the nutrients that it needs to grow more food grade mushrooms so they just ship it out the back door once again as a byproduct um and then they reload in their trays to grow the next round of mushrooms so if you get it from a, a good certified organic mushroom farm yeah it's great and then you, you introduce your worm herd to it a lot of places so the place that i like to get it from they actually when they receive their mushroom compost they combine it with some green waste all free fall so that means that it's you know from like tree services stuff like that not your curbside pickups so you're not getting you know grandma's roundup from her roses stuff like that so they mix it with the, the free fall green waste and some vegetable waste they heat it up thermophilically like you do standard compost for 30 days basically to sterilize it then they cool it down and then they introduce their worm herd and let the worms run through and digest it you get a really really clean um, unique product that way and you could buy it as just a vermicompost to where you still have some of those manures more of the body in it or you could buy it just the pure castings yeah i mean and you know there's obviously grain fed castings right mm -hmm. which i think is probably the next level up in terms of if you want to go to the high you know if you want to talk about quality 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 i think grain fed can be the highest quality if you're using obviously or, organic organic grain, grains, yeah. organic non-gmo grain and this because it's full of protein right mm -hmm. and it's more protein packed which is gonna come out in the worm casting. And I think it's gonna be a little, a little more mineral dominant casting, but that's very hard to find. I've almost never found a grain fed worm castings farm in the United States that can produce anything industrial grade or any, anything to an industrial level of soil blending. No, that's more your like uh, four quart bag on the shelf. Yeah. And the good thing with it, a lot of grains, especially a lot of grains, have a, a higher nitrogen profile. So uh, a casting that you get from grain-fed worms are going to have more nitrogen available for the plants because the once again, the worms secrete the enzymes. The enzymes help break down and make 
what's there available for the plants. Yeah, and um, I think this is a good transition point to like maybe describing the process industrially for everyone listening, start to finish. So we have a bag, a plastic bag of soil, a 1.5 cubic foot bag at the store. Where was that journey started? Like where in the production process does it go? Let's just say a normal outdoor gardening soil bag. Like, can you walk everyone through the process of how that gets turned into what the final product is? So... Breathe life into your soil with Green Grow. Organic, sustainable, all-in-one soil additives for your gardening and farming needs with the highest quality, non-harmful ingredients. Locally sourced, Green Grow promotes probiotic soil building that will nurture and help your soil flourish, maintaining a living soil system for your plants to thrive. Easy-to-use products for all stages of growing. You take pride in what you grow, and so do we. Grow only the best with Green Grow Biologicals. Order online or find your nearest location where Green Grow products are sold. The way that we do it, um, we have what's called an inline blending machine. So it's a long conveyor with a series of hoppers over it. Um, it's all computer-based, and our particular one can hold 350 formulas. So the way it works is if, say, you want 25% peat, 25% cocoa, 25% compost, 25% perlite. You got hopper one, two, three, and four, you tell it basically the percentage and then it slows that conveyor belt down to that percentage to evenly lay the material on the conveyor below where at that point it goes through a blend head which is kind of like a series of rototiller tines mixes everything together um you have but what about the peat and the cocoa? Does that come in flock? No, it, it, it doesn't. So it really, it takes a lot of equipment. So we have what's called um, uh, bale processors. So basically what you do for a bale of peat moss, it comes in compressed two to one. The biggest issue, most of our stuff is sourced from other parts of the world. Freight is a huge factor. So they, they compress things in forms to get as much in a container as possible to keep the freight down. So peat moss comes in um, compressed uh, two to one and basically like a seven and a half foot tower. We have to take the wrapping off of it, put it in the bale processor, close the door, and it's got a chain that spins on the top with a bunch of teeth on it and an elevator floor. So as the chain spins, the elevator floor slowly raises up. So it takes and it flocks that material out in the hopper to get back to your two to one flockage. Um, with the cocoa, this is probably the most violent one of all because a lot of those come in compressed anywhere from four to one to six to one. So I mean, if I threw one at your head, it, it's gonna knock you out, they're, they're hard. So a lot of places that don't have the equipment or the capital for the equipment will just basically have a bunker, throw their cocoa in there, turn a hose or sprinklers on and slowly let it soak up the moisture over time. We have, um, we have a special processing machine uh, designed by a company called Mitchell Ellis, where basically you put a pallet of these cocoa blocks in, you lift the back gate, they fall in the machine where they're slowly drug up on a chain and they kind of go off this real slow conveyor belt ride into this big hopper that basically has a big steel auger spinning in there and it grinds these blocks together in a figure eight fashion 
to where eventually they break down to where they could fit through the bottom auger screen goes through about a 20 foot auger where it's getting sprayed the whole time to hydrate it because since it is compressed you need the water to sponge it back out and it plops out the other end so the advantage that i have back when i first started doing this and i just had to flood the blocks um you're lucky if you could process two pallets in a day you're not getting a lot of production done that way with the current equipment i have I could do five pallets an hour. So it really increases the volume we're able to produce um, out of our facility. Yeah, I mean, you know, so we're taking it from it being flocked, it's going into the conveyor, it's going in the hoppers, right? Or the hoppers, conveyors, and it has the formula set in there, right? So now it walks down the conveyor, and what happens? Walks down the conveyor, um, we, we have two, Dosatrons, which are liquid um, dosing machines to put either a fertilizer or a wetting agent, inject it into the water and spray it on the material. What's a wetting agent? A uh, wetting agent, so um, peat moss, obviously to get as much on a truck as possible, they need to dry it. Peat moss in general is what is called hydrophobic which means that it repels water not absorbs water so when it's wet it'll stay wet but when it dries it becomes hydrophobic and it doesn't like to take on water so if you've ever been out watering your garden by hand with your hose and you're watering it and you see the water just pulling on top and it's not going in that's because you, you you're hydrophobic so we use what is called a wetting agent what it does is you spray it on your soil so it hits the the peat whatever could possibly be dry and hydrophobic and it's basically um almost like a surfactant uh kind of like a soap that allows the water to then penetrate back into that soil so if you ever notice anytime you buy a bag of soil you open up you stick your hand in there there's always some moisture in it um the reason for that is because it was sprayed with the wetting agent and the added water to give us some moisture because once again, we're creating an ecosystem. If it comes in muddy, everything's flooded and dead. If it comes in dry, you know, it's like the desert, everything's dead. So you wanna keep that moisture content in there, um, keep it nice and moist, not wet, but moist. And that wetting agent helps do that through its uh, shelf life in the bag. Well, that makes sense. So, I mean, we just sprayed it with a dose of trauma with the wetting agent to keep it nice and fresh. And where does it go from there? Um, from there, it goes underneath our chemical hoppers. They're not necessarily chemicals in there. That's just what they're called. They're basically the hoppers that keep the fertilizer in it to, to disperse whatever fertilizer. So we have a big two yard ribbon blender. If you come to me and you say, hey, I need a hundred yards and I want two pounds of this, three pounds of that, four pounds of that, we then, you know, take that amount of bags, 300 pounds, 400 pounds, dump it in this ribbon blender, mix it all up. So we're basically creating a custom blended fertilizer. Um, in your case, we take, when we create or manufacture the Pridelands, we're taking either the Nature's Pride or the Pridelands Veg fertilizer or the Bloom fertilizer and the Earthshine, we're combining it in that ribbon blender. So that way everything's pre-mixed and it knows per pound how much fertilizer to dispense. 
So at this point you have all of your solids on the conveyor, you've hit it with the water, the wetting agent, whatever liquid and inoculants you want, you have your fertilizers on it. So now you just gotta mix it together. So at that point it goes through the blend heads, dumps out on uh, another conveyor that takes it up overhead to where it could drop into uh, either the, the totes, cause we do one, two and three yard, the, you know, the big white super sacks. Um, into the bagging machine or if it's going out uh, for bulk for a bunker. So in this case, we're going to the bagging machine. Um, so it's got, it's all air controlled. So it's got a gate that kicks open to guide the material off the conveyor into the hopper for the bagging machine. Um, the way the bagging machine works is pretty cool. So you, you put in a stack of bags, say a stack of a hundred bags. Um, you just hit start and it's got an arm that comes down, picks up the bag, opens the bag, swings the bag underneath the jaws where the material falls into the bag. It's programmed for time for the material to run so we could do different size bags. So we do uh, one cubic foot bags, one and a half cubic foot bags, 50 liter bags, three cubic foot bags, and that's all adjusted by time how long the conveyor belt runs. So. The, the, the conveyor belt runs, the material falls in the bag. Once it falls in the bag, it drops the bag and has these two arms that come together and clamp the bag shut. After that, it slides down a conveyor to where it hits the bag sealer, which is all teat sealed. It's about 750 degrees. So those arms release it. Uh, the, the bag gets pulled through the heat sealer where it gives it that nice seal line on it and then it goes to the back kicker where the back kicker is basically a foot that kicks the bottom of the bag out to where it lands flat. So we're not standing up anymore. It goes under a bag flattener, which is two conveyors that basically squish it down. So it's able to stack nice on a pallet. Yeah. And then it goes up to um, the palletizing platform where the guys put it on the pallet. And the cool thing, that whole process, is six seconds so every six seconds it's picking the bag opening the bag swinging the bag filling the bag dropping the bag and then when that arm's pulling into the sealer it's starting on the next bag yeah and that's the, and that's why i wanted to give the audience like an idea of like the industrialization process of filling a bag because you know it's there's a lot that goes into it yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we we spend a lot of money on our equipment. There's a lot more expensive equipment, though, like the bagging machine that, say, Miracle Grow uses. It's a hundred million dollars per bagging machine. Or, I'm sorry, not a hundred million. I meant a million dollars per bagging machine. Um, so yeah, it gets it gets pretty pricey, and it's it's all automation. It it gets pretty technical. I think that's like a good visual for the customers who are listening or potential new customers of soil in general, of that bag of soil that's sitting on a pallet at your local garden center, where did it come from? How to get there? What's in it? Where'd those ingredients come from? So we really covered all those topics, I think, really well. I mean, is there is there anything that you would recommend or warn customers not to use with their soil or not to use in blending soil? Um, once again, stay away from any raw products at all, whether it be wood or manures. Um, if you're 
pay attention to the smell too. I remember one time I was at a trade show um, about 10 years ago and we're walking through looking at the booths as an outside trade show and I had this funny smell and I'm like, what is that? And I turned to the guy I was with, I'm like, is there like a sewage leak around here or something like that? And I'm not gonna say the name, but he goes, nope. And he points to the truckload of soil we're sitting next to. He said, it's coming from those pallets because it went anaerobic. So you could smell, if it smells like foul, foul at all, death. That's anaerobic. That's anaerobic, you don't wanna buy that. You're gonna kill your plants. It's nature's way of letting you know to like not be around it. So anaerobic is, <clears throat> is, is removing the presence of oxygen so that the microbes that are aerobic microbes, which are usually beneficial microbes, die off and the anaerobic ones take over. And the anaerobic ones will wreak havoc on your yep. soil system. You need to have some pockets of anaerobic microbes in a soil, but very little, right? It should be dominated by aerobic microbes. So when you have a foul smell, you know, a yellowing of the root systems, it could be discoloration and gooey. All those good things are bad signs. And never plant your plants into a really foul smelling soil because dead to rights, you're gonna get root rot. Yeah, and you also want to pay attention to the temperature and so one one term that gets thrown around a lot is hot. My soil's hot. Well, there's two ways your soil could be hot. Your soil could be hot from too much fertilizer where it's going to burn it or what most people reference to is it could be physically hot from um, an unfinished compost or something like that. But yeah, the, the, the big one that people need to understand, like, so when we make a soil here, I'm not making five yards, put it in the corner. You know, we're making three, four, 500 yards at a time and it goes into a big pile. So yes, there is this thing called thermal mass. You just introduced um, the microbes to their source of food for one by combining on that conveyor belt um, your fertilizers with your worm castings and whatever else you're inoculating with. And think about it this way, this is the analogy I like to do. If you're, um, if you're hosting Thanksgiving dinner and it's you and your wife, you guys are cooking, everything's fine. Next thing you know, your family members start showing up um, and you got 15 people in your house and everybody goes, oh man, it's really hot in here. And everybody starts opening the windows to start cooling it down. That's thermal mass. The the just yep. the presence of those like say dozen extra bodies in there will heat up the inside of your house eight ten degrees. Yep. So you open your window so everybody's comfortable. Then everybody leaves, and it's back to you and your wife. And all of a sudden you're cold and you don't realize why. Well, because your windows were open and that thermal mass is gone. It's the same thing with soil. If you have a, a 50 yard pile of soil sitting there, think about the billions and billions and billions of active microbes that are dancing around in there they're creating thermal mass so what i always encourage people to do if your soil is physically hot because especially if you're buying bulk more than likely it's going to show up warm we can go out there right now to a pile of cocoa put my composting thermometer in it and it'll be 140 degrees it's inert there's nothing in there it's just thermal mass so anytime you buy soil before you freak out because it feels warm fill a five gallon bucket Put it to the side, let it sit there for an hour, stick your hand in it, see what it feels like. So you just removed it from that thermal mass. If it cools down, which is the majority of what's gonna happen, you're completely fine. If it stays hot, even in that five gallon bucket, that's when you know whoever blended it for you, use unfinished compost. And an unfinished compost will start 
recomposting. Will recompost, and then once again, the microbes are breaking that down. They're not breaking your food down, and then you you starve your plants essentially. And it doesn't matter mm. how much fertilizer you add until those microbes are done composting that wood. They are not going to touch the fertilizer because. The fertilizer doesn't put, feed the plants as well. You, you know this better than yeah. anybody. Yeah. It's what the microbes leave behind that yep. fills the plants. So yep. if they're not breaking that fertilizer down, it doesn't matter how much you have in there, the yeah, plant's I mean, gonna starve. The microbes in, in a normal soil system, the microbes are feeding the plant, not the fertilizer. And if that's one thing that we could give customers today too, is that you're not just adding fertilizer and the plant goes, oh yum, I'm eating it all. It's, it's in an organic system, all microbes. So you're building soil, to build microbes to build the plant. Correct. And that's the difference between organic and synthetic gardening. And so many people are like, oh, my plant grows so much better when I feed it salts. Well, that's because those things are designed for the plant to take up instantly without instantly. having any of the soil work yeah. done. But it's basically like being on steroids. Okay, you get this instant growth in mass, but is somebody on steroids, are they healthier than me or you? Are they going to create a healthier fruit? No. Organics, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Organic farming, you're always going to get a better product. And typically, if you do it right, you're going to get a better yield too, no matter what you're growing. Yeah. It's a, you know, some people hate hearing that, you know, but it's the flavor, the terpene profile. And for me, the yields are always there. So I don't, I don't have any you know, I might hit it occasionally with a little synthetic just to give it a punch in the gut if it needs it, you know, especially in cold weather, but... Well, that's what you got your hybrid for. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so that pretty much gets down to everything I wanted to ask today. So I wanted to thank you for coming on the program and let everyone know out there, how do they find you? How do they find information about you? Um, well, one easy way to do it is obviously through you at thegreengrow.com. Um, you could go to growwest.com also um, and look up the soil section. Um, and yeah, we, you know, we've, me and you, we've been doing business together for a long time. Uh, and, and our goal has always been to create and provide our customers with the best products. So any and all questions are always welcome. Yeah, so if you guys need to get a hold of Ian or you want us to do some custom blending for you or some custom soil consultations, you know, reach out to the Green Grow. You can call us. You guys can email us. Um, I don't know what the email is. Maybe support at thegreengrow.com. Um, our Instagram is at thegreengrow. So if you just want to DM us, that's really the easiest way. If you want to DM us like, hey, you know, can, can you and Ian help me with some kind of soil project? Great. Just DM us. Um, yeah. Well, and I can't tell you over the years how many times that, you know, I've picked you up and we've went out to a farm together and diagnosed problems together. And I could confidently say, I don't think we've ever been to a farm before that was willing to listen to what we say that did not have bigger and better yields. We improved everything about their farm and we continue to do it. And we usually do it for free. So it's yep. not like we're out there asking for a paycheck. We're going to do it out there for free because at the very least we want our farms to be successful, which makes us ultimately successful. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's people that will easily charge you 200 bucks an hour for that. You know, we, we've driven as far as eight hours away. Um, to help fix problems and yeah I mean it's not free we like your business because obviously if we could supply the end user with a better product it makes sense to 
to order the products from us. But that's that's our goal is education and just making everybody as successful as, as possible. And hopefully we get a sale out of the deal. Excellent. Well, thanks again for having us today at your facility. And thanks again, all the listeners for tuning into the Regenerate Revolution podcast, where we talk about life, soil, and success. I'm your host, Mark Irvin, signing out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode on the Regenerate Revolution Life Soil Success podcast. Do not forget to leave us a five-star rating, review, like, comment, and share with your friends.